And, and this might shock you, but it's true. The doctrine of hell is a gift from God. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Well, church, uh, today is your lucky day because I'm not preaching this morning. It's going to be great. Um, Our guest speaker for the day is Matt Proctor, and Matt serves as the president of Ozark Christian College, which is my alma mater and one of our impact partners, and he also happens to be my dad. Um, So be nice to him today, okay? And uh, the reason that he's qualified, really the only reason he's qualified to preach on hell this morning is that he had to raise me uh, through my teenage years. So he's been there. When he talks about it, like he's seen it firsthand, right? Um, but, but, but the real reason that I asked my dad to come preach this sermon in particular is that he's the most gracious man I know. And I have encountered the grace of God through him time and time and time again. And I'm confident that'll be our experience together this morning. Would you join me in welcoming Matt Proctor? <clears throat> Get it. Well, good morning. I am very honored to be with you here this morning. I do bring you greetings from Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, and I want to say two words of gratitude before we jump into the message together. First of all, uh, I want to say thank you for the love that you show to my son and to his wife and to my three grandkids. On behalf of his Missouri family, we are grateful for his Indiana family, and I just want to say thank you for that. You bet. You bet. Number two, I want to thank you for your longtime partnership with Ozark Christian College. As Luke mentioned, PCC has been a longtime financial partner with us in our mission at Ozark of training men and women for Christian service. Uh, In June, we celebrated our 80th anniversary as a college. And over those 80 years, we've sent out over 15,000 alumni into the harvest fields. Our, Our grads have taken the gospel to all 50 states, over 100 countries around the world. And that's because of partners like you. If you don't know much about Ozark, would love for you to learn more. In fact, there's a table in the hub, and so you can go help yourself to anything there that you find with literature on on that display. Just very, very glad for that partnership. I am excited about this message. If you have your Bibles, let's jump in together. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Let's look at this passage together. We're going to start reading in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up. And he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now here's what I came to say to you today in a sentence. Your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for hell. Can I say that again? Your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for hell. Now, you here at PCC are in this series, as Luke mentioned, called Still True, and you're exploring, again, some of those fundamental truths of our faith that God is good and the Bible is true and sin is bad and and heaven is forever. And today, the truth that I have been assigned is this, hell is real. Now, when I was first assigned this topic of hell, the very first thing that I thought of was a story that I heard of two Texans who died and went to hell. And when they got there, the devil, Satan, came to check on them to make sure that they were uncomfortable. And when he got there, these two guys were smiling. These two Texans were laughing and having a good time. Satan was confused and he said, why Why are you so happy? And they said, well, look around. Barren landscape, warm temperatures. This is just like Texas. <laughs> you know, Satan was annoyed. And so he you know, storms off to Satan, uh, to the hell's boiler room and he turns the temperature as high up as he possibly can. It is blazing hot. He goes back to check on the Texans and now they're outside. They've got a big old gas grill. They're flipping burgers and they're laughing and smiling. And he says, what are you so happy about now? And they said, oh, this just feels like Texas summer. So we're gonna have a big old barbecue. Oh man, Satan is so annoyed now. And so he goes back to the boiler room. He's got one more strategy. This will get those guys. This time, he turns the temperature all the way down, colder than any possible place on earth. All of a sudden, you know, snow and ice everywhere. It looks like the North Pole. This will get those guys. He goes back to check on the two Texans, but instead they're outside in their shirt sleeves, in the snow and ice, and they're happier than ever. And they're jumping up and down. They're smiling, laughing. They're giving each other five. And he says, why in the world are you so happy? And they said, look, look, hell froze over. The Cowboys won the Super Bowl. (laughs) Lifelong Cowboys fan right here. That's the first thing I thought of about this topic of hell. The second thing I thought of when I got this topic of hell was this commercial for the TV show, The Office. Look at the screen. Jim, Jim, Jim. Jim, 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 Jim. Oh, hey, what? I am going to be your new boss. (laughs) My greatest dream come true. Welcome to the Hotel Hell. Check-in time is now. Check-out time is never. Does my room have a table? No. And the sheets are made of fire. Can I change rooms? Sorry, we're all booked up. Hell convention in town. Can I have a late check-out? I'll have to talk to the manager. You're not the manager, even in your own fantasy? <laughs> the owner. The co-owner. With Satan. Okay. Just so I understand that in your wildest fantasy, you are in hell, and you are co-running a bed and breakfast with the devil. But I haven't told you my salary yet. Go. Eighty thousand dollars a year. The office. <laughs> now, eighty thousand dollars a year. You can laugh at that, but have you done the math? If you do the math on $80,000 a year, that is, on the screen, $6,666.66 a month. Six, 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 six. Dwight is a theological genius. You did not know this, did you? It's the perfect salary for the assistant manager of hell, uh, assistant to the manager of hell. 
And that's the second thing that I thought of when I was assigned this topic of hell. Here's the third thing that I thought of when I was assigned this topic. There's an old Far Side cartoon, maybe you've seen this one, where above an angel is saying to a line of people, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Below, there's a devil saying to a line of people, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. And the next thing I thought of when I was assigned this topic was that old Disney movie, Hercules, you remember? And the wise-cracking bad guy is named Hades. And then the next thing that I thought of was a best-selling book title that I saw in an airport bookstore once, and the title of this book was, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And it didn't take long for me to realize that in our culture, the primary emotion that people feel about hell is amusement. They laugh at hell. A.J. Conyers is a Christian author. He tells about a time that he took a tour of an old historic colonial village in South Carolina. There was a young historian leading this tour. He was a gifted lecturer recreating the town in their imaginations as it would have been in the 1700s. And at one point, this, this young historian took them to an old Anglican church, and he gathered them there in the churchyard cemetery around a tombstone for some guy named James Postel. And this young historian uh, pulled out of his pocket a piece of paper, and he said this. He said, imagine that we were here when, when James Postel was buried. As they lowered him into the ground, we would have heard these words from the 1768 Book of Common Prayer. And with mock seriousness, he began to read the words. Man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live. And then he adjusted his glasses and really started hamming it up. In the midst of life, we are in death. Of whom may we seek for help but of thee, O Lord, who for our sins is justly displeased? Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayers, but spare us. Suffer us not at our last hour to fall from thee. And then, says A.J. Conyers, he smiled at us and he winked. Now, why did he wink? A.J. Conyers writes this. He winked because he knew that we shared a secret. James Postel, may he rest in peace, would never have understood this secret, but we did. The secret that we shared is this. We no longer take such otherworldly fears seriously. The idea of, of judgment for a sinful life, the fear that we could jeopardize our eternal state, these topics are not a part of, of common, polite, serious conversation these days. We understood the wink. And the primary emotion for people in our culture about an eternal place of judgment is amusement. We live in a world that winks at hell. Now, Plainfield Christian Church is a Jesus church. We as Christians are Jesus people. And if Jesus teaches anything, it is this. The doctrine of hell is nothing to wink at. Every single writer in the New Testament spoke about hell. And Jesus spoke about hell more than all the writers of the New Testament combined Jesus believed that hell was a real place. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that hell is a place Jesus is prepared to punish the devil and his angels, but it's also a place of punishment for wicked humanity, for those who rebel against him. And what does Jesus teach us about this place of punishment? Three things. You can write these in your bulletin if you take notes. Here's the first one. Jesus says that hell is a place of terrible physical suffering. Mark chapter 9 tells us about worms that eat your body continuously. Matthew 24 talks about being cut into pieces. In our Luke 16 parable that we read, the rich man is in such fiery pain that he begs for Lazarus to just dip the tip of his finger in water and touch his tongue to bring him some relief. Now, here, here's a common question. Is all of this imagery... Literal. I mean, will people really be cut into pieces and eaten by worms? I mean, the Bible says that hell is darkness, so how can there be both fire 
and darkness. Tim Keller is a preacher in New York City, and he says that when people ask him what he believes about hell, uh, he says this. He says, well, first thing, uh, the biblical imagery of fire is probably metaphorical. And they go, oh, whew. And then he says, it's probably metaphorical for something way worse. Because maybe there is literal fire in hell. God can certainly figure out a way to make fire burn without making any light. But if, if the fire language is symbolic, it's because the reality is more awful than human words can possibly capture. Hell is a place of terrible physical suffering, is what Jesus said. Here's the second thing that he said. Hell is a place of spiritual ruin. Spiritual ruin. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that your soul will be destroyed in hell. Now, someday you will have a physical death, but in hell, the Bible says you will have a spiritual death. Now, what does all that mean, that your soul will be destroyed? Does that mean that a soul, when it goes to hell, eventually burns up, that it just, you know, poof, ceases to exist? There are some Christians who believe that. This is called annihilationism, and it's the belief that after a time of suffering, souls in hell at some point will just, will just cease to be. Poof, they will just evaporate, and they're, they're gone. They're no more. But that's not actually what this Greek word destroy means. Um, that word, when it says your soul will be destroyed, doesn't mean that it, something ceases to exist. It means that something is ruined, that it can't be what it was meant to be. So in the Bible, that same word is used of barren farmland that can no longer grow crops. It's used of rotten wineskins that can no longer hold wine. It's used of spilled perfume that can be worn no longer. And none of these things cease to exist but they can no longer be what they were made to be. One time, um, I accidentally ran over my cell phone with my car, because I am an idiot. And my cell phone did not cease to exist, but my cell phone was destroyed. It was ruined. It could no longer be what it was meant to be, and that's what happens to your soul in hell. Because you understand that right now, um, on earth, I am, I am this mixture of good and bad. I'm a mixture of vice and virtue. Steve Brown is a preacher down in Florida, and uh, one time after he got done preaching a sermon, there was a lady came up to him um, after, the, after he was done, and she said, uh, she said, you know, I've, I've heard preachers before uh, say that they were sinners, but you're the first one I ever actually believed. <laughs> you can believe me when I say this morning that I am a sinner, but the good news, the hope of heaven is this. Someday in heaven, all of the bad parts of me will be redeemed out, and all that will be left or the good parts, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I will be my true self, my best self. I will be the map proctor that God always intended for me to be. But people in hell become their worst self. All the good parts are gone. In fact, did you notice in our text that the rich man in our parable, when he, when he hits up Abraham, when he calls Abraham up on like the hell hotline or whatever, he, he never asks to get out of hell. No, instead, what does he do? He tells Abraham to tell Lazarus to come down to hell. He's still treating Lazarus like his servant. Hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus to do this and tell Lazarus to do that. And this guy hasn't learned his lesson at all. He should be saying, oh, Lazarus, I'm so sorry I mistreated you. None of that, all right? Instead, he's still the same self-centered piece of garbage that he was on earth, only more so. And that's spiritual ruin. You will be all your worst parts, the selfish, greedy, arrogant, hateful, cowardly. That's all that's left, your ruined self. It's a, a place of spiritual ruin. But here's the last thing, the third thing Jesus says about hell. He says it will be a place of relational abandonment. A place of relational abandonment. Mark Twain, Mark Twain once said this, go to heaven for the climate and go to hell for the company. And there's a popular idea in our culture that hell, yes, hell will be hot, you know, kind of like a bar without air conditioning, 
but at least you get to hang out with your buddies, right? You know, I mean, they'll be sweaty, sure, but it's Miller time. And no, in hell, you are utterly alone. You are banished. Matthew 22 says you are cast out into outer darkness. You know that as humans, we are social creatures. We are made to be connected. We're made to be in relationship. But in hell, you are cut off from all relationships. And worst of all, you are cut off from God himself. Luke chapter 13, Jesus says this, away from me, I never knew you. In our Luke 16 parable, Abraham says to the rich man, he says, a great chasm has been set between us. And so you can't get to us, we can't get to you. It is, hell is solitary confinement in darkness, no visitors, no conversation. In reality, there is no hell hotline. There's nobody else to talk to. In hell, you are utterly alone forever. Physical suffering, spiritual ruin, relational abandonment. Hell is not a thing to be winked at. Hell is horror. Now, Right here is where a lot of Christians don't know how to respond. Because you understand that truth is not just something you believe, truth is something that you feel, and a lot of Christians don't know how to feel emotionally about hell. I mean, if the world's primary emotion about hell is amusement, then I would say the church's primary emotion about hell is embarrassment. They believe it's true, but they kind of wish it wasn't. They haven't figured out how to emotionally process it. God, how can you send my, my coworker, my grandpa, my neighbor to hell? I mean, yeah, yeah, he's not a Christian, but he's a good guy. He paid his taxes and he loves his wife and he volunteers at the shelter and that doesn't feel right. But hear me, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That doesn't just mean that they have broken God's rules, although they've certainly done that. We've all done that. But what's sin, the essence of sin is this. It means building your life around anything other than God. And every single person that you know has done that. And that is rebellion. It might be subtle rebellion. It might be covert rebellion. It might be a very nice rebellion. But if somebody chooses to live life separately from the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit and the rule of God, if they insist on living life with their self, their very nice self on the throne then they are rebels who have chosen life apart from God. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. The damned are simply successful rebels. They will enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded. And in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Hell is not unfair. Hell is not unjust. Hell is not pleasant, but it is not evil. Hell is a moral good. And, and this might shock you, but it's true. The doctrine of hell is a gift from God. It is a hard gift to be sure. But our reaction to this gift should not be amusement and it should not be embarrassment. It should be gratitude. Your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for hell. So can I do this? Can I spend the rest of my minutes telling you four reasons why I am grateful for the doctrine of hell? Here's reason number one why I am thankful for the reality of hell. It encourages me with God's justice. The doctrine of hell encourages me with God's justice. Now, because we are all made in the image of God, every human soul longs for justice. We want wrong to be made right. 
My daughter Lydia is 26 years old, and if you were to meet her, she is a strong, fierce, beautiful, proud woman. I mean, she is highly competent. Um, she has spoken on stage in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the country. She works for a church now down in Kentucky uh, that runs 8,000, and every, you know, almost every week she's on stage and she's speaking all kinds of, she's bold and confident, but not when she was in junior high. Now, in junior high, nobody's confident, but especially not Lydia. Back then, Lydia wore glasses. Um, Lydia had to wear these expanders in her mouth to get her mouth ready for braces, and so they made her speak with a lisp. And at this point, Lydia was bigger than a lot of the other girls. And when she started junior high, she was the new girl. You see, she had been homeschooled up until that point, and so she was kind of clueless about teen culture and teen fashion. In fact, Lydia and I were, were um, not long ago, we were reminiscing about those years in her life, and she reminded me, bless her heart. She used to go to school in this matching velour tracksuit, lime green. I, when we were talking, I, I just literally, I apologized to her. I said, Lydia, I'm so sorry. I should have said something. <laughs> and she's like, I know. She's like, I thought it was cool. But as soon as she got to school, the kids reminded her that it was totally not cool. Because you know, you know this about junior hires, right? Junior hires are pre-human beings. They're not actual people yet. They're still in this developmental stage that we call being a jerk. That is how junior hires are. They are brutal. And, and when Lydia was in junior high, there was this one group of boys that made Lydia their target. Now, they were led by a kid named Cameron because, of course, it's always a kid named Lancer Cameron. And this group of boys... I mean, they just made it their mission to mock Lydia. Cameron and all of his buddies would call her all kinds of names every day. They did this for two years while she was in junior high. And Lydia just took it. Now, if you know her today, oh, that would never have happened because Lydia is, I mean, she is, is fire and spit and attitude on a stick and there's no way she would have taken that girl power. But as an awkward junior high girl, she didn't say anything. And she never told any of her teachers, and she never told us as her parents. She just let them bully the crud out of her for two years until, until one day near the end of her eighth grade year. Now, it was after lunch, and she was walking down the hallway, and all the kids were hanging around in the commons area there in the Webb City Junior High, and waiting for class to start again. And when Lydia walked past, Cameron called her a name. Now, it was a rude name. It was a crass word that I'm not going to repeat here. But I'm telling you that on that day, something in Lydia snapped. Lydia had had enough and she felt it, a power surging up inside her. It was Hulk rage. <laughs> Maybe it was the green tracksuit, I don't know, but <laughs> she was not meek and mild-mannered Bruce Banner anymore. No, she whipped around, she walked right up to Cameron, she got in his face, she cocked her arm back, and boom, she punched Cameron in the face. Hulk smash, all right? Woo! And, and here's, listen, here's what I, Cameron was stunned and all his friends were stunned and all the onlookers were stunned and Cameron, Cameron didn't hit her back, but, but he kind of, kind of pushed her away and, and she took a step right back at him and she said this, she said, you can tell on me if you want to, I don't care. I'm tired of you making fun of me. Stop it. And then she whirled around and walked off. Now, Cameron never did tell the principal. Cameron never called Lydia another name again. Two weeks later, Cameron gave her a note apologizing. 
And at the end of the school year, Cameron moved away and never came back. True story. <laughs> Boom. Now, when I learned about all of this much later, I felt two things. Number one, I felt angry at that kid for messing with my daughter, whom I love. And number two, I felt deeply satisfied that she had punched him in the face. <laughs> Because I'm telling you that there is something in the human soul that longs for justice. When we see something wrong, we want the wrongdoer punished and we want the wrong made right. But so often in this world, you know this is true, when we read stories, when we see the news, there is no justice. Tragedies happen. Little boys are kidnapped as child soldiers. Little girls are sold into human trafficking. Women are abused. The poor are victimized. People of other races are mistreated. Babies killed in their mother's wombs. Drug dealers enslave others in addiction, school shooters, serial killers, child molesters, genocidal dictators, governments that attack Christians, that burn down their churches, terrorists who behead believers because of their faith, and something in our spirit cries out, Lord, that's not right. Do something. And the good news of the doctrine of hell is this, he will a day is coming when Jesus will come riding back on his white war horse, a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And Revelation 19, 11 says this, he comes to make justice and war. And he will take every last one of those wicked men and he will take Satan, the bully of this world, who's been messing with the people that he loves, and he will throw them into the lake of fire. And it is not wrong in that moment to feel a sense of holy satisfaction. I am grateful that hell is real. Because when the world is overrun with evil, it encourages me to know that the justice of God is coming. Here's the second reason I'm grateful. The doctrine of hell protects me from God's punishment. It protects me from God's punishment. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Sometimes fear is a legitimate motivation for obedience. I have a, I have a confession to make to you this morning, and it is, it's this. I'm not a very patient person. Specifically, I am not a very patient driver. Um, not long ago, I counted them up. I, I have speeding tickets from eight different states. Now, brothers and sisters, that's, that's not good, okay? And I'm, I am not proud of that. I, I, think, I think what happened is this. I think when I got baptized, I think my right foot got left out of the water, okay? I think, I think that my, my accelerator foot never got saved. It is a complete pagan. It is a heathen, all right? And, uh, and can I just say this? Illinois is the worst. Can I get an amen on that here today? Oh my word, Illinois is like Oprah. You get a speeding ticket, you get a speeding ticket, you get a speeding ticket. I hate Illinois, all right? And, and listen, listen. Sometimes I drive the speed limit because I want to be a safe driver, but sometimes when I am in Illinois, I drive the speed limit because I am afraid of getting a ticket. And sometimes I pay my taxes because I love my country. And sometimes I pay my taxes because I am afraid of the penalty. And sometimes I obey God because I love God. But sometimes I obey God out of fear of punishment. Fear is meant to be the last line of defense that keeps me from falling away from God. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of eternal security, the idea that you can never, ever lose your salvation. Now, the Bible doesn't teach eternal insecurity either. You don't have to wake up every morning wondering, you know, am I saved today? Am I in or am I out? No, 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 no. God's grace is huge. It is big, 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 big. And losing your salvation is hard, but it is possible. 
And I know my own heart, and I know how easy it is for me to get caught in sin. And I, I need to hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. If you call your brother a fool, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Matthew chapter 5. If you lust, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Matthew chapter 25. If you ignore the poor, the hungry, the prisoner, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Revelation chapter 3. If you have a lukewarm faith with one foot in the church but one foot in the world, you are in danger of the fires of hell. And Jesus is not some kindly grandfather who will just tussle my hair when I misbehave. Well, boys, we'll be boys. And he is not some smiling buddy who winks at my sin. He is Lord. And he is judge, and his judgment is no laughing matter. And I, I have been a Christian long enough to know that there have been people that I have sat right next to in church who will be in hell someday. And it could be me. And I don't want it to be, so I am grateful for this doctrine because it protects me from the punishment of God. Here's the third reason I'm grateful for the doctrine of hell. It keeps me on God's mission. This doctrine keeps me on God's mission because if I'm not careful, I can be lazy about the Great Commission. But when I remember that all these people around me that I care about who don't know Christ are really going to hell, it purges my soul of complacency and it makes me a bolder evangelist. When I was a a Bible college student there at, at Ozark in Joplin. I was the youth minister of a little church there in town. I had a young lady who started coming to our youth group named Helen. And after a while, Helen decided she wanted to become a Christian. I said, that's great. Helen didn't know anything about the Bible. I said, why don't I come over to your house um, on, on Wednesday afternoon and we'll just start studying the Bible together and see what it means to, to follow Jesus. How about four o'clock? And so she gave me uh, her address. And the address she gave me was actually for um, her brother Keith house. Helen was from a very rough family background, both of her parents alcoholics, abusive situation. So Helen had moved out of her parents' house and was now living with her, with her big brother, Keith. And so Wednesday, four o'clock, I got in my car and I drove um, to this address that she had given me. And, and when I pulled up to this old yellow house in front of this house, I realized, um, and you need to realize that in Joplin, there are some pretty rough neighborhoods, all right? And I want you to kind of get the picture in your head. I want to paint the scene. I brought a picture of me back then. This would be me. Um, and as you can see, I was a skinny, goofy little Bible college kid. Look at that cardigan sweater. I'm a young Mr. Rogers, Okay. <laughs> I grew up in Iowa. I've never been in a rough neighborhood before. I'm a farm kid. I know nothing, all right? I'm just a you know, preacher wannabe. And, and so, man, I pull up and I realize, hey, this is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. This is a pretty rough place. And I was nervous. I'm just telling you that my palms were sweating and my heart was beating. And man, I, I could kind of taste it in my mouth. But as I was walking up the steps of this old yellow house, I knocked on the door and the door swung open and there stood Keith, big guy, um, you know, uh, a bandana around his head, Tattoos up and down his arms. Um, on one arm, he had, a, he had a tattoo of a knife. And, and I was trying, I was trying not to judge. And I was like, okay, a knife. Um, maybe he's a chef, you know. <laughs> and I'm just telling you, I was, he was standing there with a pipe wrench in his hand. He said, come in. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and he'd been working on his bathroom. He went to go work on his bathroom some more. And I went and I sat down at the kitchen table and I started studying with, with Helen. And every week, I'd, I'd go over there, Wednesdays, 4 o'clock, and, and I'd study the Bible with Helen, and so I got to know Keith. And I found out that, hey, Keith actually was a really good guy. Keith um, had, uh, was married. He had two kids. Um, Keith had dropped out of high school when he was 16, but he'd gotten a job in a factory. He was a hard worker. He provided well for his family. Um, Keith wouldn't let his, his little kids swear like all the other little neighborhood kids. Keith didn't drink like his parents did um, or do drugs. He, uh, he smoked. He smoked like a chimney. But, but Keith had really given his sister... 
uh, Helen a, a better place to live. And, um, and so over the course of these weeks, uh, Keith had this, um, he loved muscle cars. And so he had this uh, Plymouth Barracuda that sat out in front of his house. And I don't know anything about cars, but when he would work on it, I'd just stand there and, I, and I'd hand him these tools. And over the months, we kind of struck up this, this odd friendship, this long-haired, tattooed, factory-working dude and this short-haired, you know, sweater-wearing Bible college kid from Iowa. And uh, this was August 1992. And all summer long, all that summer, Keith had been sick, he'd been fighting some kind of illness and finally decided he was gonna go to the doctor and when he came back from the doctor, he had the correct diagnosis. Keith had lung cancer. And the doctor said, you've probably got about six weeks. 29 years old, wife, two kids. And as soon as we found out, I went right over to Keith's house and I said, Keith, man, I am, I'm so sorry and whatever we can do, Man, we're, we're here for you, and, and, and we did. My, my wife Katie and I, we'd, we'd bring groceries over to their house, and when he had to go for his chemo appointments with his wife Tina, we'd come and we'd watch the kids. And uh, he started going through chemo and you know, losing his hair and getting real skinny, and he was on oxygen. And every time, I mean, I could tell he was really gonna die. And every time I'd walk up the steps of that old yellow house, I'd think to myself, I ought to, I ought to tell him he knew I was a Christian, obviously. I was a pastor. But I had never just had the Jesus conversation with him. And, and I would think to myself, I ought to tell him. But for whatever reason, I don't know why, I just couldn't get the words out of my mouth. And so finally one evening, my wife Katie and I got down on our knees in our living room and we just prayed that God would give me the courage and the boldness and the words to speak to Keith. And I went back to his house. I sat down on that couch next to Keith. I just said, Keith, um, I, do you know what's going to happen to you after you die? No. Well, can I, can I tell you what's gonna happen to me after I die? Sure. And I told him about my faith in Christ and I told him about the hope of heaven that I had because of Christ. And Keith wanted to know more. And so I, I got a Bible for him. I wasn't a very good reader, but I got an easy to read Bible for him and I, and I highlighted a bunch of verses and I took him over there and Keith would just read those verses over and over and over again. And pretty soon he was so weak, he couldn't, couldn't even hold that Bible up anymore. And so I took over the Jesus film, that movie of Jesus' life. And, and he would just watch that movie over and over again about this guy, Jesus, who loved all kinds of people, even guys like him. I'll never forget, it was, it was a Wednesday in November. It was the day right before Thanksgiving, 1992. And Keith uh, decided he wanted to give his life to Christ. And, and he was so weak, I had to baptize him right there in his own bathtub. And three weeks later to the day, I preached his funeral. And I will always be grateful for Keith's faith and I will always be grateful that God finally gave me the courage and the words to speak to him. But listen to me, brothers and sisters, I almost missed my chance. At that point, I was probably the only person in the world who could tell Keith what he so desperately needed to hear and I almost didn't do it, but it was the reality of hell. I knew what awaited Keith and that's what urged me on. Who's your Keith? I am grateful for the doctrine of hell because it keeps me on God's mission. Can I mention one more reason why I am grateful for this doctrine? It's this. The teaching on hell reminds me of God's love. Now that might be strange to hear. It reminds me of God's love because some Christians think that the doctrine of hell is antithetical to God's love, that they are somehow in contradiction. But listen to me, you can't understand God's love unless you believe in the doctrine of hell. You cannot appreciate your salvation until you know the terrible tragedy from which you have been saved. And 
the doctrine of hell reminds me of the depths of God's love. Last, last story. My, um, my wife, Katie, is the children's minister of the church that we're part of in Joplin. And this was several years ago. Um, one Friday evening, we took 15, 20 kids from her children's ministry to uh, this big Baptist uh, church in town that was doing a passion play. They do this, you know, the, the life of Jesus, a passion play um, every spring. And, uh, and so we took these, these kids and we got to the church about an hour early because we wanted to get these kids uh, really good seats. We wanted them to have the front seats right there in the balcony because we thought that'd be a great vantage point for them to watch this. And that particular year in her children's ministry, Katie had a lot of unchurched kids. There was a guy in our church, awesome dude, who would bring all of these kids from his neighborhood. Now, he lived in one of those rough neighborhoods in Joplin. And so these kids that he brought were from broken homes and they were street kids and they were very, very rough around the edges. And, and, and so let me just say that maybe the way to put this is their spiritual gift was not sitting quietly for an hour waiting for the play to start there in church. And it was a Friday night, I was tired, I'm just being honest, I was a little grumpy, and I was riding herd on this one little third grade kid named David. And you talk about rough around the edges. I mean, David just kept whacking all the other kids in the arms and he kept harassing them. He kept telling dirty jokes. He kept cussing. And, and I just, I wanted to glue this kid's lips shut. I mean, I just, he was making me mad. And finally, um, you know, what I ended up doing is, is I took David out of the balcony. Just David and I came down and, and we got down to the ground level and we sat on the very back row of the main sanctuary right back there by the, by the door. Uh, right on the aisle. And, and I, uh, David sat on my lap and I kind of held him there so he wouldn't bother. And finally, finally, uh, the lights went down and the play began. And within moments, to my surprise, David was transfixed. I mean, eyes wide with wonder because David had never heard the story of Jesus. And so as the play unfolded, he kept asking me questions there in the dark on my lap. And slowly, I began to see this, this very familiar story to me. I began to see it through David's fresh eyes. Mr. Matt, why did he say that? Mr. Matt, how did he heal that person? When Jesus came walking down the aisle, bearing the cross within inches of where we were sitting, and David looked over at me and he said, Mr. Matt, is is that still Jesus? Yes. And when Jesus got to the stage and the soldiers threw the cross down onto the stage and they threw Jesus down onto the cross and the soldiers began to pound those nails into his hand, David turned to me in genuine grief and he said, Mr. Matt, why are those soldiers doing that? Why are they killing him? And I tried to explain. I said, David, Jesus died to take the punishment for our sins. You see those other two guys on those other two crosses? They were, they were criminals. They died for the bad things they did. But Jesus died for the bad things we did. And David said to me with tears rolling down his cheeks, that's not fair. I said, you're right, David. It's not fair. But Jesus did that because he loved us. And what David at his age could never have known how truly unfair it was, I, I knew. I knew what it cost Jesus. He went through hell for us. Physical suffering, Jesus endured that, the scourging, the beating, the crown of thorns, the nails by his wounds, we are healed. 
Spiritual ruin, Jesus endured that on the cross. Jesus was not his true self, pure and perfect. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And relational abandonment, oh, Jesus endured that, hung there, suspended between heaven and earth alone. His his followers scattered, abandoning him, but that was not the worst. No, the worst was when God the Father looked down from heaven and he saw his once pure and perfect son now covered with all of the sins of all of of humanity for all of history, this great, huge, black, writhing mass of evil and God the Father could no longer stand the sight and as the sky grew black at noon on that good Friday, the old gospel preachers used to say that was God turning his back on Jesus and that's why Christ cried out on the cross, my God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by his own father because he would not abandon you. Jesus endured hell so that we could have heaven. And your heart is not ready for heaven until it can give thanks for hell. I don't know what God might be doing in your heart today, but I want you to know that around the perimeter of the room, you'll, you'll see there will be people, folks wearing green lanyards, some leaders, volunteers here at the church. That's our prayer team. And if God is doing something in your heart, they're there just to talk with you, just to pray with you, just to listen. And at the end of the service, whenever that might be, around the room, in the lobby, you seek those folks out and you do whatever business with God you might need to do. But right now, as we prepare to enter together a time of communion, could we pray? 